I'm Michael Pauley, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, good day, everyone. We're recording this show in the studio of the Diocese of Sioux Falls. And uh, normally I'm joined by my co-host, Chris Motes, but uh, unfortunately uh, he got pulled into a last-minute meeting with uh, the bishop, and uh, so I am flying solo this morning. Uh, But anyway, I love doing the show from here in Sioux Falls because then I don't have to fuss with setting up microphones and Zoom links, and I'll just admit I'm a total dunce when it comes to technology. So I love it when Casey Bassett, our brilliant studio manager, handles all those details. So thank you, Casey, for making us all look and sound good. We really appreciate it. So this is the 106th episode of Faith and Politics, but as regular listeners will know, the first hundred or so of those episodes were produced by uh, my co-host Chris before I joined the South Dakota Catholic Conference. And uh, one of the things I've been doing lately um, is sort of binge-watching reruns of Faith and Politics, and since there's a a hundred of them, I've been quite busy doing that, uh, doing it while I exercise, while I'm drinking my morning coffee. And uh, one of the things that has been striking to me as I've reviewed these old episodes um, of Faith and Politics is how it's this combination of the really old and the really new. So, for example, one episode we might be focused uh, on a specific bill before a specific committee uh, in the legislature and educating people about that bill. And then the next week, uh, you know, it's going back 2,400 years in time, and we're talking about the ethics of Aristotle. And that strikes me as part of the genius of the show, and I guess you could say really the genius of Catholicism, which is that you know we're engaged in these present-day battles but as we do so, we're constantly anchoring ourselves in the truths and experiences of the past. So today, we have a guest for the show who I think excels at applying the wisdom of the past to our present-day political realities, and that is Father Henry Stephan. Uh, Father Henry is a Dominican priest uh, who is currently at Notre Dame University. He's a doctoral student there. He received his undergraduate education at Princeton University and his graduate degree in theology from the Dominican House of Studies. Um, Father Henry grew up in the Bay Area of California in San Jose, so maybe as an extra bonus uh, today, uh, he'll help us understand California politics, which would be a real miracle, I think. So, uh, Father Henry Stephan, welcome to the program. Thanks, Michael. It's really good to be with you. When when I read your profile um, on the University of Notre Dame webpage, um, I was really struck by this this line that you wrote. You said, uh, "I'm interested in the intersection of faith and politics in medieval Europe, and how political philosophers and theologians sought to reconcile the tensions of heavenly and earthly citizenship." And of course, mm. uh, the yeah, first thought that came to my mind is, "Well, here here we are, um, you know." A, a, you know, many centuries past the medieval era, and we are still trying to reconcile the tensions of heavenly and, and earthly citizenship. Um, I was blessed uh, earlier this summer to hear you give a talk before um, a Catholic audience, um, you know, talking about the uh, heavenly and earthly citizenship, and um, and a lot of your talk focused on uh, specifically on the thinking of Saint Augustine on this matter. Um, 
as, especially as, uh, as he wrote it down in his uh, seminal work, The uh, City of God. And, you know, I, I know it's perhaps an unfair question for a book that, you know, weighs anywhere from 700 to over 1,000 pages, depending upon which edition you have. But, but what, what, would, what would you say are maybe, for contemporary Christians, what are the three most important takeaways um, from, for St. Augustine um, as he wrote them down in The City of God? Sure. It's a, the City of God is a seminal work. And, you know, per what you were saying, I think that we will always be struggling to work out and reconcile our belonging to heaven, our, our pilgrimage towards heaven, and the realities of striving to make the earthly city better and to make it the kind of place where we can work out our salvation and where we can flourish in union with God. And that work will never be completed this side of paradise. It will always be a challenge, and politics and religion will always be thorny and knotty problems right up until the last moment. Uh, but that's not a bad thing in a real sense. It gives us a great chance to grow in virtue and to and to be able to rely on God's grace. So you ask what the three big takeaways from St. Augustine's City of God. That's such a big question, but I, I tend to focus on a few of the key themes. You know, I think first and foremost, St. Augustine is all about peace. You know, we were made for peace. We're desperate for it. We need it. And gosh, isn't that true in the spiritual life, in the life of our country, in our political life? All these places we sense the lack of peace, sometimes in actual wars taking place, Ukraine and Russia, uh, but also just the strife that can tear apart communities, families, our own sense of well-being. For St. Augustine, peace comes from God. Peace is God himself. And we were made for peace, and everything if it's true and good, will lead us towards that peace. His second point, though, is that all too often human beings try to build peace on their own terms rather than as a gift from God. You know, so oftentimes, uh, this is his account of the city of man, as it were, that the city of man is kind of an emblem or a metaphor for the way in which we, through our self-assertion, try to build the peace that we can really only get from God himself. You know, and all the different ways in which we do that. You know, the city of man runs through each and every human heart, right? Uh, it would be easy if it were just those guys over there. But no, there's there's a lot of self-assertion. There's a lot of desire for power, for domination, for control that we all have. And even in the pursuit of good ends, that can throw us off track. Uh, but the final thing, and I think that the, the most important thing in a certain sense, is our reliance on the grace of our union with Christ. You know, that is the means by which we are adopted citizens of the heavenly kingdom, by which we're united to Christ, and we're going to be, God willing, fellow citizens with the saints in heaven. You know, so here on earth, it's imperfect. Uh, you know, we're, we're like strangers in a strange land, to quote St. Paul. You know, we're wandering. Uh, we're like Abraham, you know, setting out from the place we know and going through a place that we are not always familiar with. But like him, we're destined for a heavenly city. And so it is that it is in our, our life of faith, our union with God, that we're led there. Very good. And um, so fast-forwarding uh, several centuries uh, here past Augustine, uh, you know, we come to the figure of uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, who as a Dominican, uh, you've obviously spent the profound amount of time uh, studying uh, his thinking. And, and of course, he... Uh, 
studies Augustine in careful detail. Um, what talk, talk to us about Thomas Aquinas on Augustine? Just uh, any any uh, points of agreement, points of expansion or departure from Augustine's thought on politics. Saint Augustine is one of the most quoted sources in Saint Thomas. Uh, there are some theologians I think who have said that all of Western theology is an extended commentary on Saint Augustine. Uh, yeah. And I think that there's certainly an amount of truth to that. Uh, St. Thomas's great genius was not necessarily pure originality. It was his synthesis. It was his ordering, his structuring, his ability to draw on scripture, the fathers, uh, philosophy, all these sources of wisdom and of truth and be able to, to create a structure whereby we can learn and understand and see things as they are. Of course, in the, in the academy, Sometimes people throw around terms like an Augustinian account of politics. That isn't always a, a useful term because it often means that different commentators on Augustine have emphasized different aspects. Mm. You know, so when when you hear the phrase Augustinian, often that's code word for a kind of skeptical or negative view about political life. Politics is punishment for original sin in that in that reading. Uh, it's the notion that Politics is a necessary evil, but one that we just kind of get through. Uh, politics is something that, you know, we have to uh, endure, but in the end doesn't get to the heart of what we are. Thomas's reading of Augustine is different, and the kind of Thomistic gloss is more optimistic. For St. Thomas, politics is part of being human. We would have had politics even without the fall in the Thomistic account. Now, they would have looked much better and a lot different. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, but, but politics for St. Thomas points to God's government of the universe. You know, God governs the universe wisely and graciously. And we participate in that. You know, as long as you have multiple people, as long as you're pursuing the common good, you need to coordinate that somehow. So for St. Thomas, you know, uh, it doesn't mean to be faithful to Augustine, means to view politics just as a bad thing. We're political animals, he borrows that from Aristotle. You know, we're, we're made for communion, for union with other people. Uh, and I think that St. Thomas's read of St. Augustine is, is an apt one. You know, it's just when people use the term Augustinian and Thomistic, yeah. sometimes they use them as contrasts or as, as polarities. Yeah, yeah, I understand. So um, let me throw out uh, maybe an unfair question, but uh, I'll just ask, True or false, is there an ideal form of government that all Christians should gravitate towards? No. Okay. Uh, I mean, I don't think that the church has, has stated that. And and the truth is, every, every Christian is obliged to work towards justice, towards having a government that renders what is just to each and every citizen, and in a real respect towards God, you know? So... A just regime is one that is never fully realized, this yeah. side of paradise. St. Augustine is a fascinating section in the city of God where he, he evaluates the Roman Republic and considers whether or not it lives up to its definition of a just republic, Cicero's definition. And he says, no, it fails. Hmm. You know, no earthly government is ever fully just, but we can get closer or farther away. Yeah. You know, so the ideal form of government is going to vary by the age. There are so many circumstances that play into it. Education, technology, the geographical circumstances, the history and temperament of a people, the the conditions, the religion, you know, all of these different things mean that the church is always having to apply perennial truths and the truths of the 
of the goodness of the human person, of our duties towards God, of, of justice itself to every different kind of regime. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, not to try to put words in your mouth here, but but I think, you know, maybe we could say that the Catholic uh, tradition doesn't endorse a particular form of organizing our political life, but but what it does provide, I guess, is a sort of a... Um, a method for evaluating those systems, uh, you know, through the principles of Catholic social teaching, principle of subsidiarity, uh, the uh, dignity of the human person, you know, that we, in a sense, evaluate our different political regimes based upon whether they advance those those principles. Would that be a fair statement? I think that's absolutely fair. And the truth is, of course, you know, we don't have to be completely agnostic here. You know, some types of regime are clearly going to be more tending towards closeness, towards uh, upholding certain elements. But no regime is perfect. Yeah. No regime is immune from and no regime is immune from its own disintegration or forms of corruption or decadence. You know, uh, every type of political order contains within it the seeds of its own downfall. You know, yeah. so there is no. Uh, perfect or ideal regime. Every era requires a kind of return to faithfulness to to truth and to the principles of justice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I I was uh, really struck uh, when I was I was blessed to hear a talk you gave uh, earlier this summer before a Catholic audience. Um, one thing that really uh, stood out for me is you talked about three dangerous temptations that Catholics face as we grapple with the politics of our modern era. And um, I want to just dive into these and take them up one at a time. Um, sure. The first temptation uh, that I recall you mentioning, um, and I, I, I think I recorded the wording of this correctly, is kowtowing to the spirit of the age. And so just wondering if you can expand a little bit on uh, why is this a temptation, and or how is this a temptation, and why is it dangerous? You know, I think that... Uh, this is something that the scriptures warn us against, right? You know, the spirit of the world, the spirit of the age. Uh, there is always a temptation to conform and to lose what is unique in being followers of Christ and being adopted sons and daughters of God, and instead to be like other nations. I mean, this is what the entirety of Israel's journey in the Old Testament is all about, right? They want to be like other nations. And God wants them to be his people, to be distinct, to follow him, you know. And this is something that cuts through each and every one of us. We want to get along. You know, we want to be like other people. We want to conform. Uh, you know, and the truth is the spirit of the age is is not uniquely bad now. It's, it's a temptation in every age. And at some points, it's more dangerous, corrosive, and toxic than others, you know. And we have unique vulnerabilities now the the desire to go after contemporary social trends and to say yeah we're like that too we can we can do the same thing that you're doing it's always a temptation uh because it allows us to think that we've somehow achieved a victory uh when when we align ourselves with a successful coalition you know uh it's important to be part of the political conversation to be part of political life I mean, that's the important work that you do and that, that each Christian is called to in his own or, or in her own way. But at the same time, we cannot allow ourselves to 
be informed by the spirit of the age that wants to give its own version of truth, its own counterfeit religion. You know, yeah. we need to be faithful to the truth and to God himself. Yeah. And and I guess as we look to history, um, you know, regrettably, we, we're not uh, at a loss for examples of times when uh, Catholic church leaders and the Catholic laity have uh, I, you know, tried too hard to conform themselves to the spirit of the time. I think of the rise of National Socialism in Germany, uh, where you see so many examples of heroic resistance, you know, amongst, you know, various Catholic clergy and bishops and laity, so, so much resistance to the rise of National Socialism. And yet, we have to be honest that while some were heroically resisting, others were trying to find a way to, in a sense, sort of baptize that spirit of the age, to try to somehow imagine that the, 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 the truths of our Catholic faith were, were not irreconcilable with National Socialism. And of course, tragically, you know, we found out too late in some cases that uh, that couldn't be done. So, well, uh, a second temptation from your talk uh, that you mentioned is uh, uh, when people form a belief that all of our political woes and dysfunctions um, can somehow be corrected if we just return to some previous era of history mm. when everything was better. And uh, I'm wondering if you can just unpack that temptation for our audience. I mean... I am wearing a medieval habit right now. You know, <laughs> I am a member of the Dominican order. I'm in the medieval Institute. I'm here talking about St. Augustine and St. Thomas. Uh, you know, I get the appeal of the past. I am, I am a temperamental conservative in the truest sense of the word. You know, I love the past and I love the glories of Christendom and the, and the tremendous things that have been achieved, you know, by our forebears at the same time to study this history and to study the history of, of politics, of political thought deeply, is to come to the realization that there has been no perfect era. Yeah. You know, there has been no era that is the uh, the epitome of Christian polity that to which we always need to hearken back. There have been some really great things, some tremendous achievements, some noble, saintly, just, and virtuous things that we've lost that we should hearken back to. But at the same time, there was there was a lot of complexity and murkiness, you know, to the to the witness of faith and to the establishment of justice, you know, at the time in the Middle Ages. It's easy to come up with a kind of historical pastiche and to say modern bad, medieval good, or to say medieval bad, uh, ancient world good. You know, different people, depending upon your intellectual genealogy or what you love, they'll they'll create kind of the white black. Yeah. mentality of, of finding in one era all that was good and then it was all lost thanks to the corruption of somebody you yeah. know and we we dominicans can do this too we blame the scotists you know we blame uh you know the 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 advent of of uh of modernity in some crucial sense for breaking apart the unity of the sciences you know but we have to be careful against uh, against an overly simplistic genealogy yeah yeah absolutely you know it what you were saying uh, reminds me of this book I've been reading uh, by James Hitchcock, The History of the Catholic Church. And uh, I'm uh, up to uh, about the, well, actually, I'm up to the French Revolution now. So uh, I've progressed through a, a, a good deal of this volume. Uh, but yeah, I have to agree with you that, uh, you know, when you actually sit down and read a good 
solid history book of 2,000 years of the Catholic Church, you're, you're kind of thumbing through the pages and going, I'm, I'm really trying to find this ideal era where everything was, was yeah. perfect and the, and the church had no problems. And um, it is really, you find in every age, you know, troubles. And then again, that as, as you, to, it's not to be relativistic. I mean, you can certainly no. hone in on no. certain eras of history where, okay, you know, things were worse in this era or better than that era. But, but I think it's true that in every chapter of the church's history, you find serious problems, serious struggles, you know, this should be something of a consolation to us. Yes. You know, it's easy to think, uh, doom and despair. Everything is getting worse. It's uniquely bad. Now in certain ways, I'm right there with you. Right. I mean, there, there is some real profound, horrific confusion, uh, and blindness to reality that we're having to deal with right now. Um, but at the same time, we are not unlike our forebears. Every era struggles with its blind spots, with its with its uh, intellectual patterns that blind it to certain elements of truth, with uh, you know patterns of behavior that seem just inevitable, ingrained, or entirely predetermined. You know, and so every age requires a kind of witness of heroic sanctity. Every age requires us to go back to the sources. And to be, you know, honest but but faithful critics of our own age, and every political regime can do with improving, you yeah. know, which is why we can't give up on it. We've got to we've got to work for it, and we've got to strive to bring the uniquely Catholic voice to each and every age of our political life. We can't we can't withdraw from it. We need to be engaged. Oh, amen, amen to that. Um, so. Uh, now I want to go into the the third temptation because, of course, we're Catholic, mm. so everything comes in three when you're Catholic. So, uh, absolutely, temptation number three is uh, to allow the church to be co-opted or manipulated by a particular political party or group or movement. Um, and I just was wondering if you can tell us how you see this sort of thing happening. You know, either. Uh, today or in the past, and uh, can you just elaborate on the danger that that poses? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think there was a French revolutionary general who once exclaimed something to the effect of, there go the people, I must follow them, for I am their leader. You know, uh, and I, I don't know if that's strictly true, but I love the line, and I'm, I'm, willing, to, I'm willing to bet that it has been said somewhere or sometime. This is, this is a truth. You know, when, when you're fighting a political battle, and the church is in a minority now, and it's getting smaller. You know, the church has lost a tremendous amount of political clout over the past 50 to 70 years. It's, it's been a really astonishing experience. And, and she's lost a lot of members. She has lost a lot of her internal reservoirs of strength in this country. So there's a lot, you know, of difficulty that's all wrapped up with that. So when you're a minority, when you're facing a tough political battle, uh, it's easy to get co-opted as being just another set of foot soldiers. And to then think that all your goals, that the whole essence of being a Catholic is somehow tied up with the victory of your political party. You know, again, this is not me calling for withdrawal or for being uh, agnostic about political fights. There are certain fights we have to be part of and that we cannot stay neutral in. And I'm all for getting involved and, and being intensely passionate, uh, you know, participants in the political process. 
but we've always got to remember it's the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding. You know, you can win election after election, uh, but you can still lose, you know, the essence of what it means to be the church here in here in the U.S. You can you can achieve tremendous political victories, but at what cost? You know, you've always got to be anchored, not in, as I said, the spirit of the age or the spirit of the world. You've got to be anchored in the truth of the gospel and the peace that comes not just from uh, getting amped up on a political cycle that's very emotivistic and that's very, uh, you know, corrupt in a lot of ways, but to remain anchored in truth, anchored in the peace of Christ. That's the only way we can do politics without losing our sanity. Yeah, you know, politics these days t- is eating the world. Yeah, it's taking over everything. I study politics. I love politics, but it's nuts. Yeah, <laughs> have to not let politics devour our life of faith. Yeah, you know, and that's that's as important as doing politics well. Doing politics well as Catholics means not letting it consume everything, mm-hmm. and not letting yourself think that my whole spiritual life revolves around political stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, I th- I'm sure you have to deal with this, Michael, given your job and the kind of work that you have to do. Oh, yeah, Ab- absolutely. And, uh, you know, and I think that this is uh, something I recall from your, your talk, and I think it was uh, uh, a thought of St. Augustine, is that uh, we need to be involved in the business of the earthly city, i.e. politics, if for no other reason than to let the, the the church, you know, which is sort of the ambassador of the heavenly city, in order to allow the church to do its work, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we th- there's an old classic expression, the freedom of the church, you know, and this has always been kind of political goal number one, like the prime objective for Catholic involvement in political life is to secure the freedom of the church to be herself, you know, to exercise her divine mission, to you know, help people be sanctified and to grow in union with God. You know, when politics interferes with that, we are we are losing something invaluable, and we need to uh, to take steps to to defend it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, I want to maybe go uh, in a little bit of a different direction here, but uh, sure. Uh, a, a phrase that um, you often hear mentioned in discussions about the limits of what can be achieved in politics is uh, don't imminentize, imminentize the eschaton. See, I couldn't even pronounce it correctly. And uh, I remember the first time I, I heard this expression, I, I strongly disliked yeah. it because I, I can't stand anything that smacks of uh, insider uh, jargon as opposed to using uh, sure. plain English. But, but I have come to appreciate uh, over time that, you know, this phrase really does just capture something. Uh, but for our listeners who aren't acquainted with it, uh, define what it means to uh, imminentize the eschaton and why shouldn't we do it? <laughs> sure. Well, it comes from Eric Vogelin, uh, who is a great a great political philosopher of the 20th century. Uh, imminentizing the eschaton is just a, uh, it's a fancy way, I suppose, of trying to make heaven here on earth. You know, the eschaton is the second coming. It's the last yeah. day. It's the, the relation of God, uh, you know, in the, the recapitulation of all things. Immanitize means to make present here and now, you know, to make worldly, to yeah. to anchor in our time. You know, so politics that immanitizes the eschaton is the politics that is utopian, that tries to create heaven here on earth, that thinks 
that earthly success is the same as salvation, you know? And what was the, this is a core point, you know, that's not true. The forces of Marxism-Leninism, this was immunitizing the eschaton par excellence. Like that was the explicit goal, the workers' utopia, you know, the communist paradise here on earth. But it can be done in all sorts of different ways, you know? How many political campaigns tell us if I win, you know, the oceans will will recede, you know, the clouds will part, you know, the sun will shine, it will be morning in America yet again. I mean, every political campaign has to do this, you know, every political campaign does this. But the degree to which we we actually start to believe it on, on a deep level that, you know, everything will be fine if only X, that's immunitizing the eschaton, you know. I think William Buckley and, and several other, he was the editor of the National Review, they had buttons, you know, in the in the 1970s that said, "Don't immunitize the eschaton," you know, because the the political thought of the 60s and 70s often tended towards this belief in the perfectibility of mankind here on Earth. Yeah. Nope, not going to happen. You know, that's just not true. We have a theological and philosophical basis for saying that is just not true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, of course, there's the uh, old cliche, uh, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And there definitely mm-hmm. seems to be, um, you know, this recurring pattern in, um, you know, the, the history of mankind, where whenever we seek after these utopian ideals that are unrealistic, we actually make our situation more miserable, you know, than if we had focused on something that was a goal that was more modest and therefore uh, more achievable. So, well, just a, a quick note, uh, we're, for our radio listeners, we're coming close to the end of our, our time here, uh, but uh, we're going to continue the conversation um, with Father Henry, and if you'd like to, uh, to listen to that, please uh, visit our website, sdcatholicconference.org, and you can listen to the whole podcast uh, posted there. So for our uh, radio listeners, until next time, li- live well. All right, and for our podcast uh, audience. We're going to continue the discussion with uh, Father Henry. Um, this so, is the reward for the true believers. That, We're going to get to the really controversial stuff that, now. That's right. Yeah, we, we save the best stuff for last because only the privileged few get to uh, to listen to this part of the conversation. But uh, uh, actually, it, it, with all joking aside, uh, this this next one, we really will venture into you know a little bit of a, I guess you could say, a hot uh, topic. And so in recent years, there's been this lively debate in Catholic intellectual circles on the subject of Catholic Catholic integralism, and um, mm. and I know some of our listeners are very familiar with this debate, uh, but for those who are not, uh, essentially this is a disagreement over whether Catholic beliefs uh, can or should be harmonized with the dominant political and economic philosophy in the West uh, during modern times, which is what we generally call uh, classical liberalism. And so I know this is a huge subject, but uh, but just in brief, Father Henry, what what is your take on this debate? Is this really just a clash between two different visions of what fallen man can reasonably be expected to achieve in politics? I think it's a clash between about fifty different visions or okay. hundred different visions. You know, okay. uh, I mean, so integralism as a term is relatively recent. You know, it's only in, it's only maybe two cent- century and a half, two centuries old. You know, it refers to a vision that tries to integrate, to bring together uh, the life of faith, the political order, the social order and economic order, you know, to integrate these things. 
what does that mean in practice? There are about as many answers as there are so-called integralists. You know, you have all these different things. You know, I can think of a few different, you know, rough groupings of people who may be described in some way as integralists, but, you know, that may also be unfair. So you have some people who are the self-described post-liberals, right? So this kind of more closely aligns with what you were just describing. Uh, these are people who are more deeply skeptical about the American liberal tradition. And by liberal, I, I don't mean progressive per se. I just mean, you know, uh, our kind of constitutional order. Mm -hmm. You know, the belief that it's it's founded upon a faulty anthropology that's excessively Lockean or that is is not sufficiently grounded in truths of human nature. You know, so some of the people like this are uh, Patrick Deneen here at Notre Dame, a good friend of mine, uh, you know, Adrian Vermeule at Harvard University is a law professor. One of my old teachers, Chad Pecknold, who taught a great course on the city of God at Catholic U. I don't think they would necessarily describe themselves as integralists. In the Catholic Twitter world, they're sometimes called that, but you know, th th that's the post-liberal grouping. There are other Catholics who would claim the term explicitly, and they want to see church and state established in closer unity. Mm -hmm. You know, they would emphasize kind of medieval and early modern papal documents and uh, teachings of the church to, to focus on what the state owes the church and how, this, how the church is meant to, uh, to arm the state in a certain sense or to equip the state to uh, bring about a Catholic social order. You know, uh, so that's that's one set. There's other groups that are are much more modern. Like these are sometimes just internet cranks. You know, uh, yeah. sometimes they're rooted in French movements from the night from the late 19th, early 20th century. Some of these groups can be tainted by anti-Semitism, by all sorts of different things. It's unfair to kind of paint all of them with that with that brush because the term integralism is so controverted. It applies to so many different different things. Yeah, on the subject of Catholic integralism, I uh, I don't wouldn't describe myself as a Catholic integralist, uh, if for no other reason, just because, as you said, there could be like fifty different strains or definitions of what that actually means. Um, but I have to say that I'm grateful for uh, the contributions of Catholic intellectuals who uh, are self-described, uh, integralists, because, um, I do think that they ask valuable questions about, um, our current classical liberal order, which, uh, seems to be, uh, fraying around the edges. You know, I think, uh, you know, both, both critics and defenders of what we call classical liberalism would, would find a point of agreement in this, which is that, uh, there's a lot of, uh, erosion around the edges of, of classical liberalism. And uh, and and the, and the problem that that creates, I guess, for us is that uh, you can imagine, I can imagine anyway, um, that the classical liberal order being replaced by something better. Uh, but it's also really easy to imagine it getting replaced by something worse. Would you agree with that, Father Henry? No, absolutely. I mean, I think that we have we have three points. Uh, at least that I have three points to make on this. As you said, you know, it's a... It's Everything a comes in threes. <laughs> right, absolutely. Uh, you know, the first is that we're clearly in an age of transition. You know, uh, the the kind of social fabric, social trust is declining. Uh, and this is due to a variety of different causes. Uh, you know, 
it is it is something that has affected both our political life and our religious life and it is uh an age that is very much less stable less predictable and more prone to extremes and towards tearing apart and so we're clearly in an age where we can't just keep singing from the same hymnal close our eyes and hope that everything is fine and so in that sense yes absolutely we need to draw on all the depths of our tradition on all our resources and be able to both come up with an account of why this may have happened and call us towards something you know whatever comes next secondly i do think we need to uh, exercise a due degree of caution precisely because we live in an age where the church is seemingly getting weaker not stronger you know uh in this country certainly you know uh fidelity to the church's teaching and participation in the sacramental life are decreasing in most parts of the country uh this should not you know th this is not doom this has happened before but this is happening in a severe way right now and it's affecting everything and so we should not necessarily presume that if we leave the the liberal order that the next thing that would come would somehow be a catholic uh you know nirvana it's like no far more likely it would be a worse regime than the one we're currently under you know so yeah. i i wouldn't be entirely sanguine about saying ah the liberal order is passing away it has a faulty anthropology you know uh to hack with it it's like well sure there's plenty of there's plenty of limitations there's plenty of uh you know complexity we could add to this but all in all the churches has been able to grow and flourish notwithstanding the imperfections of our political order and we can't take for granted that what comes next is necessarily going to be better. You know, Catholics don't have that kind of clout and simply wishing does not make it so. The final thing is, I do think that we always have to be mindful of our rootedness, you know, rootedness in our faith, but also rootedness in a given tradition of a people, uh, you know, the history that we share, you know, we can't just make a polity out of nothing. We don't just snatch truths out of the past. You know, our, our experience of it in the political life is always mediated through the habits, the ways, the, the, the small C constitution, as Aristotle would say, not the, yeah. not the document, but the kind of the way that a people lives and governs itself. That doesn't make it all good, yeah. but it is ours, you yeah. know? And so here I'm not offering a, an unqualified defense of every aspect of the American regime. I'm just saying to a great degree, like any people, we do not just make the world over again when we find ourselves in a period of transition. We are going to be drawing on our past, on our traditions, on the character and the ways of our people. And if our political conversation becomes unmoored from that, well, what's that old Vogel line about immunitizing the eschaton? I think that's that should be like a red light danger zone because yeah. that that always seems like a a risk to me you know yeah. uh, doesn't mean that we always keep everything it doesn't mean that we don't have changes that we don't progress but you know i think it is it is important that we always have a historical mindedness and, the, and a certain gratitude you know to our fathers to those who came before us uh, yeah. we don't just you know throw everything out with the bathwater amen to that yeah and and one of the things that it just really distresses me personally uh, when I talk to so many 
people, uh, and I know it's going to sound like I'm making an unfair generalization here, but particularly when I when I speak with with younger people, uh, is just the sheer number of them who uh, almost seem to act as if history began the year that they were born. You know, they they just have yep. such a incredibly um, finite. Uh, view of things and and I and I think that that contributes to uh, this this problem of imminentizing the the eschaton when when your your view of history is so uh, narrow and and you don't uh, draw upon the wisdom uh, and experience of previous ages well well this has been a, a terrific discussion I wish we had more time but uh, maybe uh, Father Henry can we maybe have you back on for a future uh, program? I'd love it. I felt like we barely got controversial. I said very anodyne things. I, so, I, I know. You know. Trust me, I have more controversial things I could say. We'll try to spice it up uh, the next time we have you on. Well, um, uh, just uh, for our listeners, I, I mentioned at the outset that I've been uh, binge watching uh, previous episodes of Faith and Politics. And uh, if you're uh, uh, new to this program and you'd like to see some of the discussions with fascinating guests that we've had before, uh, visit our website at uh, sdcatholicconference.org and you can uh, find over a hundred uh, fascinating conversations uh, with uh, great guests and talking about uh, stimulating topics. And so uh, anyway, uh, I've just really enjoyed this uh, conversation with you, Father Henry, and uh, look forward to our next talk with you. Um, that's all the time we have, folks. So until next time, live well. <laughs>